Hello and welcome to the HRD Live podcast. I'm Sam Alberti, reporter for HRD Connect, and I'll be your host. This conversation on collaborative workplace culture was recorded remotely during the coronavirus lockdown. And as a result, the audio quality may fluctuate slightly from time to time. Joining me for this episode was Adam Galinsky, author, speaker, and professor of leadership ethics at Columbia Business School. We discussed the notion of double-edged thinking and how it can help leaders anticipate the unexpected, how leaders can become more conscious of how their power affects others in the workplace, the benefits and potential pitfalls of a diversity culture in modern organisations, and much more. Enjoy the podcast. Adam, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Happy to be here. So you, you gave a masterclass at, at one of our events last month, and um, one of the main topics you were talking about is is creating a, a culture of collaboration in the workplace. Um, so I was just wondering if, uh, you know, for those who don't know or, or for those who weren't able to, to be at our event on the day, could you just unpack this concept for me a little bit and, and just explain what this means to you? Sure, yeah. I mean, a, co- a culture of collaboration has become um, such a hot buzzword uh, in uh, organizations around the world. And the idea is, right, that we get these synergistic benefits when we can bring people together, have them build off each other's ideas, coordinate effectively, um, and then, then we can produce, you know, much better outcomes, greater economic prosperity, greater innovation, um, all of these benefits that come from a culture of collaboration. However, what I did in the masterclass and what I've done a lot of research on is how difficult it is to achieve a culture of collaboration. Now, part of it is just complex, right? Because we're having all these people come together. We're going to have to create coordination channels. Um, But there's also so many landmines that can blow up the process. Um, One of those landmines is conflict that when you bring people together. So you have to think really carefully about how any policy or goals uh, that you're going to implement, which are designed right, to increase this culture of collaboration can actually ironically backfire um, and create unintended consequences. Now, sometimes, right, you can actually create the very thing you're trying to avoid, right? Sometimes you can create a whole new process, um, but there's just a lot of these very specific multiple landmines that can derail a culture of collaboration and actually put you in a worse place than if you've never put in those policies um, in the first place. Yeah, and and one of the sort of potential tools that you introduced um, as a separate concept in your masterclass was um, the idea of double-edged thinking. Um, yeah, so so once again, for for the people who who perhaps weren't there or just you know don't recognise that as a phrase, um, can you just unpack that for me as well? Sure. Yeah, I've been working for a long time. I'm writing a book right now with one of my colleagues. That's uh, called the double-edged thinker, and the double-edged thinker really is designed to help people become better at anticipating not only the intended effects of their actions, but the unintended consequence of it. Um, And so you have to identify, prepare for, um, and prevent those unintended, but oftentimes predictable side effects um, from occurring. Now, these predictable side effects um, can be, you know, when we put a policy into place or we make a particular decision or we act in a particular way. We, now we might be thinking, oh, I'm gonna act this way to influence this person, but it, instead they create reactants, right? The exact opposite of what I want. Now I've studied this in a lot of different domains, but I think three areas that are particularly important for creating a culture of collaboration are uh, empowerment, 
right? Empowering your people, um, diversity, um, get, leveraging those benefits of diversity um, and transparency, capturing the what is good about making your organization more transparent. The problem is each one of these, empowerment, diversity, and transparency all have with them the seeds of their own destruction, right? These predictable side effects. They're unintended, but they still occur systematically and predictably. Right. Okay. Well, why don't we take those um, those three areas you mentioned of, of empowerment, diversity, and transparency, and, and um, if you could sort of just go through each one, maybe tell me a bit about it, and then uh, you know relate it to this idea you you just mentioned about there being an intended good, but also potential unintended downsides. Absolutely. Uh, so empowerment has become such an incredibly popular buzzword in the world, um, and it's because um, power has these great positive um, elements. They, you know, the psychological feeling of being powerful can help people make the unimpossible possible. I've shown in my research all the different ways uh, that power has benefits. It increases people's confidence and their passion and their authenticity uh, and their just the ability to locomote and accelerate down the road. Um, again, achieve all of these great things. Uh, we're less likely to be derailed um, by small obstacles in our way. Um, but what I've shown is that power actually reduces one of the most critical tools for creating a culture of collaboration, and that is perspective taking. Now, I've studied power for 25 years. I've also studied separately, but also together with power, uh, this concept of perspective taking. Now, what is perspective taking? It's an incredibly simple idea. It's just the ability to look at the world through someone else's vantage point to understand how they're seeing the world, what might be motivating them, how they might be interpreting um, your actions, et cetera. And there's all these just amazing benefits of this. Um, my favorite example of this is during the uh, time that the world came closest to nuclear war, which was uh, United States versus the Soviet Union when uh, the Soviet Union put uh, missiles in Cuba. And there's a lot of talk about using military action. And one of the assistants uh, to uh, um, Tommy Thompson, one of the assistants to P President John F. Kennedy, basically said, um, I'm taking Khrushchev's perspective. I actually know him. And I think from his perspective, he wants to stay in power and he wants to get out of this without a nuclear war. So what we have to do is we have to give him some resolution that protects our long-term national security in the United States, but allows him to save some face so he can tell his people, I did something. And so he said, look, if we tell the Soviets to take out the missiles from Cuba, we can pledge to never invade Cuba. So he can go back to his people and say, I saved Cuba, right? And so it's understanding that perspective that becomes uh, really important. Now, perspective taking is incredibly simple, um, but it's also incredibly difficult. We fail all the time at taking other people's perspectives. Uh, and, you know, it's just that we don't really just, it's really easy to see the world from their point, but we don't take that little step to do so. And what I've shown in my research is that one of the impediments to perspective taking is power. Um, so for example, some of my most famous experiments I've done, they've randomly signed some people to a boss position, a high power position. Some people randomly signed to a low power position. They're gonna do a task together. And then I, I put in a measure of perspective taking, how much they're currently taking each other's perspectives. And what I found is that being just randomly assigned to a position of power decreases people's 
perspective taking tendencies in those moments. It makes sense, right? Because when you have power, mm. you're less dependent on other people. Um, but it becomes really important. And the reason why is that research shows that perspective taking is particularly important for a culture of collaboration. Research from Harvard, uh, um, at, from Harvard Business School, they define a term called collective intelligence, right? This idea when a team, what makes a team smarter than other teams? And one of the single most critical variables that equated to smarter teams was the average perspective taking ability of its members. Right, and, and there's also, an, there's another idea you, you introduced in, in uh, one of your recent articles, uh, which is about powerful people potentially having blind spots. And I, th I think that's something that relates quite closely to this idea of perspective taking you were just talking about. Um, so would you be able to just um, explain that for me um, as well, just sure. from the perspective of somebody who just, you know, hasn't necessarily heard this phrase before in the context of, yeah. of the workplace? Yeah, so one of the biggest blind spots that people in power have is they don't recognize the power of their power. Now, what do I mean by that? It means that when we have power, all of our gestures are more powerful. They get amplified. I actually call it the power amplification effect. And this happens all the time, right? Just simply like when someone in power criticizes you, it just hurts. It cuts into you a little deeper. But when they praise you, it makes you float up a little higher. Right. And so we can see all of these ways. Now, one of the things I've shown in my research and amusing version of this is um, an ambiguous phrase. If someone, if, imagine if your boss sent you a six word text that simply said, I need to talk to you, mm. right? Now that's always a little scary, um, <laughs> but when it comes from someone with power, that scariness, that portentousness, uh, that terror uh, gets increased and amplified. Um, and just a, an example of how like perspective matters here. I have to give this example from my own experience. When I was an assistant professor, and I saw a doctoral student who has less power than me at nine o'clock in the morning. I said, Gail, um, come by my office. I need to talk to you. Um, and so she came by around 3 p.m., six hours later, and she was like crouched down and she looked so scared. And I was like so confused because I had great news to share with her about a conference idea. Um, and I still remember Gail slammed her fist on the table and said, never do this to me again. And I was like, do what? <laughs> and she said, never tell me you need to talk to me without telling me why. Do you know how much work I got the, you know, uh, the last six hours? None. Is Adam mad at me? Is someone else mad at me? Am I going to lose resources? And I realized that um, when we're in power, we have to take that extra step, right, and recognize the power of our power. And I thought about that. If I just said to Gail, hey, Gail, come by my office. I have a great conference idea. That's literally the same number of words as, mm. Gail, come by my office. I need to talk to you, right? And it would have solved all of our problems. Now, I was doing work with a, a company which has offices all over the world and the president would do this all the time. And so a negotiation happened with the president. They're like, look, just tell us why. And he said, no, I don't have time. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, what can we get you to do so that you don't scare us when it's not necessary? So he agreed to put in two characters into his emails or text, a colon and a closed parenthesis, i.e. a smiley face when it wasn't a problem. And I saw an executive there two years later and I said, how's that working out? And they're like, oh my God, it's great. We get the smiley face. We feel so relieved. And if there's no smiley face, we run as fast as we can. Um, and, you know, this really, you know, power um, changes the impact of our behavior. I'll just give you one last final example of this mm -hmm. is um, we have a new dean at Columbia Business School who got hired about a year ago. Um, and he had been a regular faculty member for 20 years here. And he said the day he became dean, he realized 
he could no longer make jokes or be sarcastic with colleagues. Because before, when they were his good friends and he made jokes, they laughed. Now, like, oh, wait, what does that joke mean? He's, he's the dean. Am I in trouble? You know, what's going on? And so he realized that actually, ironically enough, uh, that it became a constraint. So what you can see here is that power reduces perspective taking. And one of the ways it reduces perspective taking is we're not aware of the power of our power. Mm. And and you mentioned there about taking extra steps um, in order to uh, to become more aware of these blind spots. Um, so can you just explain to me um, how leaders might actually go about about doing this? Absolutely. So it's in a sense, it's it's adding in perspective taking intentionally. And the way that I like to do this is I like to use a um, a car analogy, uh, which is you know power. I already said is great. It like accelerates you down the highway, right? Power is the gas pedal of a car, um, but perspective taking is the steering wheel. Without a steering wheel, you can go fast, but you're gonna crash into things. And so one of the things is that you wanna train at your perspective taking skills. So you wanna practice taking other people's perspectives so it becomes a more natural component. So it's just simply like in this situation, how are other people going to interpret that? Now, one of the most important elements for a culture collaboration is to think that decisions that you make uh, as a leader, that your employees think those decisions are fair. And all what's really critical there is just, for example, taking the perspective of your employees and asking, will they think this is fair? Not what I think is fair, but like, mm. will they think it is fair? So if we can combine perspective taking with power, we can have an amazing race car speeding down the highway, excellent acceleration with uh, precision steering. Great. Um, well, let's move on to talking about diversity, because I think that's one of the other sort of core topics you, you were talking about when you uh, did your masterclass uh, a few weeks ago. Um, this is obviously, um, well, it's always been a hot topic, but particularly this year. Um, so just tell me about the importance of this from your perspective and and what you think could potentially go wrong uh, if this is implemented um, in a way that, um, you know, potentially has flaws. Right. So, you know, first of all, I think diversity is a moral good, right? Just in and of itself, giving everyone equal opportunity to succeed is the fair and right and justice way to be in the world. But there's also a business case for diversity, right? Um, my research, other people's research has shown that diverse teams are more creative, diverse companies are more profitable, and even diverse countries have greater economic growth. So there's this idea, there's this link from diversity to um, new ideas, so innovation, right? And there's and that innovation then spearheads all of these benefits that uh, these downstream benefits of profitability and economic prosperity. Mm -hmm. um, but here's the thing that the research shows: if you compare diverse teams to homogenous teams, diverse teams outperform homogenous teams on average. However, mm -hmm. diverse teams also have by far the worst outcomes. They can become beset by conflict and internecine warfare and internal problems and stuff like that. So what we know is that diversity has these intended goods. It has a very predictable downside, which is this predictable side effect of conflict. Right, okay. Well, um, I guess the obvious follow-up question would be how can organizations achieve this then? Um, you know, just in terms of creating a, 
a team that is not only diverse but also effective and and is without any of the potential downsides that, that you just mentioned yes so i think there's three things that 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 people can do that research has shown pretty clearly um the first one is actually a foundational critical element of all teams of creating mm. a culture of collaboration and that is you cannot create a culture of collaboration unless that team has some type of shared goal that they're collectively buying into. Now, what the research shows is that shared goal is critical for all teams, right? But it's particularly critical for diverse teams because without that shared goal, the differences become more apparent. So one of the first things we have to do is we have to implement that shared goal. Now, sometimes leaders make a mistake. They think they have this great shared goal, and they may have it, um, but they think they've actually communicated effectively, and they haven't. That gets back a little bit to like this lack of perspective taking, right? Is do the people that you're communicating with fully appreciate um, the share goal? So that's step one. We got to create a share goal. Now, the mm -hmm. second thing that I've shown in my research is that how we talk about diversity really makes a difference, right? If we emphasize that we embrace uh, diverse people from diverse backgrounds, that really is great for underrepresented minorities and feeling more comfortable in organizations, but it can make the white majority feel a little excluded. And if you emphasize equal opportunity and meritocracy, um, that can make white majority feel more comfortable, but can make a little bit of alienation into underrepresented minorities' minds. So what I've shown in my research is what I call this kind of like um, I call it multicultural meritocracy, that we have to create a kind of a vision, if you will, or a mission around this idea of combining the benefits of talking about diverse backgrounds with a commitment to meritocracy. And the key thing is those have to be spoken about essentially together in the same sentence, such as, you know, in order to be the organization we want to be, we want to embrace people from, um, you know, different backgrounds um, and ensure that the most talented of them succeed, right? So this idea that you're combining meritocracy and multiculturalism. And then the final thing, what I've shown in my research, again, this is critical for all cultures of collaboration, but it's particularly critical for uh, diverse groups, is that the individuals feel valued and respected for their strengths. And so one of the things that I actually try to help organizations do is I call it expanding the status pie. Now, in negotiations, we talk about expanding the pie, right, the pie of resources. It's a similar idea. When we all focus our attention on only one talent or only one ability, um, it's just zero sum. But if we can emphasize multiple ways that people can contribute to organizations and the multiple values that people bring uh, to those organizations through their um, variety of talents um, and efforts, um, then more people can feel respected, more people can feel valued. And that's, again, a critical component for our organizations and all teams, but particularly for diverse teams. So the three keys to getting this great part of diversity, right, the innovation and economic growth, without the predictable downside of conflict um, is shared goals, right? And a multicultural meritocracy mission mm -hmm. with expanding the status pie. Okay, uh, and finally, Adam, I just wanted to move on uh, to talking about uh, transparency a little bit, because uh, again, this is something that you you spoke about during your session. And again, it is something that is, um, is particularly relevant uh, in recent times. 
you know, with all the disruption we face this year. Um, so just just um, tell me a little bit about um, about how you think uh, this idea of transparency can can have a can have an influence in the workplace. Sure. Yeah. Transparency is um, on average, again, amazing. Right. It's, a, it's another buzzword I think that people are doing. Let's just go to the diversity example. Um, a number of, of studies have shown that if you just make transparent hiring patterns and promotion rates among different groups, uh, people recognize where there's uh, might be the potential for discriminatory practices going on and actually be able to more effectively increase that diversity. Now, transparency is also great for ethical behavior. Right. There's a famous phrase, right, that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Um, and so you want to put sunlight onto the organization uh, to reduce conflicts of interest um, in unethical behavior. Um, and so, again, you know, so transparency decreases uh, barriers to diversity. It uh, decreases unethical behavior. Um, but the problem is, is that it can transparency can also create sometimes um, intense competition. So the predictable side effect of transparency is um, resentment and increased competition. And let me just give you a famous, famous example of this. So the famous example of this, uh, around the 1970s, the average ratio of CO paid average worker was let's say around like 15 to one. And then slowly kept creeping up and by the early 90s in the United States, it was like 30 to one. Now, Bill Clinton became president in 1992 and he put a policy in place that was designed to reduce, right, to make the CEO pay closer to the average worker. And what he did is he said all CEO compensation in all of its forms had to be completely transparent and open. Now, what did they think was going to happen? Okay, once everyone sees how much CEOs are getting paid, they're going to become upset, the CEOs are going to feel guilty, and the CEO pay is going to get more in line with the average worker. That's not what happened. Why? Because who do CEOs compare themselves to? They don't compare themselves to the average worker. They compare themselves to other CEOs. Now they know what every CEO is getting paid. They're like, mm -hmm. that CEO gets a helicopter. I want a helicopter. That CEO is getting this perk. I want this perk. It just mushroomed. It went from like um, 30 to one ratio to 250 to one ratio, right? It came down a little bit in the financial crisis and creeped right back up. So that's a good example of how um, this like CEO pay becoming transparent just created intense competition and rivalry, um, et cetera. Mm. So we have to do just like we did with diversity. We got to do just like we did with power. How do we get the good and transparency without the bad, right? Mm. And I think what you have to do is you have to recognize that anytime we make things transparent, right, we can create this competition and resentment. So what do we do about this? Well, some companies have decided that we want to make people kind of aware of where they stand in the organization but without creating specific patterns of competition. So what they've done is they try to create kind of pay ranges that occur at different levels in the organization. Now, that allow people to know where they stand without creating um, specific in investments. I also think you have to think sometimes about sometimes we make things so transparent that we actually reduce um, knowledge of what's really going on. Um, so in some, just to give you some example, that some state schools in the United States, these are public schools, um, made all tenure-related discussions, so this promotion to tenure, these lifetime appointments, um, every discussion had to be made public with minutes. 
So, of course, what ended up happening is nothing got discussed in those meetings, right? <laughs> and everything was sort of under the table in the background and stuff like that. So sometimes we can try to create transparency, but we create this, you know, this, again, this systematic side effect of making things even less transparent. So we've got to think really carefully about um, how we go about doing that. Okay, great. Um, well, just to finish off then and sort of tie this all together, um, are there any sort of final thoughts that you might have or perhaps, uh, you know, golden pieces of advice for, for listeners who, who want to get this kind of thing off the ground in their organizations uh, and create uh, more effective cultures uh, of collaboration? Yeah, you, know, you, you kind of have to be a little bit of like sort of Nostradamus and try to predict or envision the future. And so I think, you know, one of the things we know from like drugs, for example, right? Most drugs, you know, are designed for having these intended effects, but they also have these very predictable side effects. And I think what's particularly interesting when we take the drug analogy is what are the most common side effects, right? When you look at drugs, I'll just give you three or four common side effects, right? One is weight, right? Lots of drugs affect your weight. They either like make us overweight or underweight. Um, sleep, a lot of drugs affect our sleep. So a predictable side effect of making you like not be able to sleep or be too sleepy right? The final one is dry mouth, right? Lots of drugs create this sort of like dehydration effect um, for a variety of different reasons. So you automatically know whenever you're creating a drug, how's this going to affect weight? How's this going to affect sleep? How is this going to affect other dry mouth? I think the same thing happens when we're thinking about the double-edged thinker. A double-edged thinker should immediately say, what are the predictable side effects of many policies? Well, I've already given you one today. One of the predictable side effects of many policies is conflict. Right? We know conflict is a downside of diversity. We know conflict can be a downside of transparency. Another one is unethical behavior. Right? We know that um, like power, power makes people blind to the ethical implications of their behavior. Right? Um, when we are feeling really competitive with people, let's say those specific rivalries, we're more likely to act unethically against them. So what you have to do to be a really good double-edged thinker is kind of like simulate the future. And you want to simulate the future in, in a couple different ways. One is you just want to ask yourself this simple question. Is there a predictable side effect that occur, occur for this? Here's another great example. Um, I mentioned shared goals, but we know that stretch goals, like giving people goals that are difficult to reach, produce much better outcomes for organizations. They also produce two very predictable side effects. One is unethical behavior, uh, and the second is too narrow of a focus. Right, so we know as soon as we're gonna put a stretch goal in, we have to put in guardrails for ethics and that narrow focus, right? And so part of it is just simulating and thinking about that, um, using our social science knowledge to try to come up with that. But there's a second thing that we can do besides our own mind, simulate our own mind, is you gotta have, get the wisdom of crowds, get other people to simulate and try to under determine their simulations and whether they are, are, uh, are doing that. Uh, you know, the example from uh, the Avengers of the, you know, Dr. Strange simulates every possible outcome with Thanos and he does 14 <laughs> million of them and there's only one which they succeed, right? So mm. we want to kind of take Dr. Strange, the wisdom of Nostradamus of a Dr. Strange, but then the only way to get there is by asking lots of different people with lots of different vantage points to simulate that future and see if they can come up with a predictable side effect. And then we can integrate that. Now, here's the final thing I wanna say, is that once, let's say we do that, and we say, okay, I think this policy is good. I think we've determined the predictable side effects and we'll put some guardrails in. What you need to do at that point is you still have to 
collect data. You still have to collect perspectives. Once an idea, a decision, a policy has been implemented, it's not complete until you actually keep monitoring. I call it data and perspective monitoring, right? To just see, because maybe there's something that you still miss, but it pops up in the data. And then we can see that um, really apparent. That's what you could see with the policy of CEO full transparency. Within mm -hmm. a couple of years, if they are monitoring it, they could see the explosion, the absolute explosion of CEO pay and realize that the policy had made things worse. Uh, Adam, let's wrap up there. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much. You know, it was a great pleasure both doing the masterclass and talking to you today. And I, you know, truly hope that the tools and the and the ideas I've given um, everyone listening um, will help you um, be a more effective leader. Will help you create these more effective cultures of collaboration by both producing the intended effects, but also minimizing these predictable side effects. Adam, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this edition of the HRD Live podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to stay on the lookout as we are now once again releasing new episodes on a fortnightly basis. Finally, remember to head over to hrdconnect.com for more insight and analysis on the future of work. In addition to a range of articles, podcasts and video content, you'll also find our brand new content hub, which can be accessed from the top of the homepage. Here, you'll have access to the very best of HRD Connect's content in addition to some exclusive extras. We hope to see you over there. Until next time, goodbye.